Hey, I'm Raji, and on the Weekend Mornings podcast today, when it comes to the Russian war on Ukraine, the Canadian government has welcomed many displaced persons to Canada, but is it enough? We're going to be talking about that on the podcast today, and also we talked to Adam Olson, the BC Greens MLA for Saanich North in the Islands, about the dismantling of the downtown Eastside tent city along Hastings. He had some heavy criticism for the province, especially on their managing of the housing budget. But first, animal rights in BC have just progressed in a big way due to the latest case of pet abuse through the courts. BC resident Yi Ming Zhu has been sentenced to spend four months in jail after brutally abusing his pet kitten. Judge Harbance Dillon wrote in her June 29 decision that Zhu had been callous when in May Zhu decided to punish his kitten for scratching and biting him by smacking it repeatedly against concrete and stepping on it, according to the court document. The neighbor heard the kitty's cries, called the police, but why are people abusing their pets? And do we need to change the adoption policy around that? How can we ensure that a safe home for the adopted pet will result for someone who gets a cat? With us, Rebecca Breeder, she's an animal rights lawyer. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this was such a disturbing story to come across. What did you think of the judge's decision, though? Oh, it is. It's so disturbing. And I mean, like you said in your introductory remarks, this lasted over 20 minutes. The assault actually happened over 20 minutes. And one of the incredible things about this decision is, first of all, it's the first case of major animal cruelty in British Columbia after a major animal cruelty decision was made in Alberta at the Court of Appeal, which is their highest court. And in that case, in the Alberta Court of Appeal, the the court basically said how animal cruelty cases are crimes of violence as opposed to crimes of property, which is how they were often treated, you know, like crimes against the car or something like that. And so this was the first case where the court was, it was kind of tested whether the court will view animal cruelty as a crime of violence as well. And the prosecution in this case, I have to say, did a fabulous job because they got the court to agree that it it should follow that Alberta Court of Appeal decision. And it's super important because what it essentially means in the bigger picture is that here in British Columbia, when it comes to sentencing of animal cruelty cases, they will be sentenced like crimes of violence, as they should be, instead of crimes of property. And like the judge in this case, there are certain parts, you know, reading through it. When it came out a couple months ago, I was like, I'll read one sentence, which really struck me. The offending by Mr. Zhu consisted of very cruel conduct towards a defenseless animal recently brought under his care. It included multiple acts of assault. The degree of violence is highly concerning. The moral gravity of his offending is high. And the reason why that struck me is the word of assault. Yeah. Usually that's used about people, right? A person assaults a person. Yeah. Whereas here, what we see is the language is transforming in the legal world where courts are recognizing more and more in different contexts, including in animal cruelty contexts, that animals are not just property. They're more than just property, even though technically they're still kind of, they are considered legally property, but courts are grappling with this idea of property, but they're sentient beings. So this is a really a huge step forward in, in animal law in British Columbia and in Canada, I would say, too. 
not to mention that the prosecution um, was like, I'm just really, I, I'm amazed by the prosecution in this case. I really do think they did a, a fabulous job. They got a, uh, a 25-year prohibition, which means that Mr. Zhu is not allowed to own, possess, or live with an animal for at least 25 years, which is huge. And that's, these types of prohibition orders are not often made. Okay, so the judge, Judge Dillon, actually came down hard. She did, and I know he only got four months, and a lot of us, our, our first reaction is, oh, this guy should go to, to jail for life for what he did. Because this was, remember, this was a five-pound kitten. He swung the kitten around by his tail, kicked the kitten, squashed his head on the ground. I mean, I'm sorry to be so descriptive, but it's, it was, there's nothing, you, you can't get around saying anything there's no reason why anyone would do that, even though I have to say, I have to, like, just as a side note, I, I have to chuckle in a way that part of the defense in this case, my understanding, is that uh, Mr. Zhu was provoked by the kitten. How anyone could be provoked by a five-pound kitten is beyond me. But, I mean, clearly the, the court didn't put uh, any weight on that, which thankfully it didn't. But it just, it's just in, in general, it's this case, I have to say, it really, it's a sad case. Most of us would, our, our first reaction is this guy should go away forever in jail. But unfortunately, our case law is not there just yet. <laughs> but what this case does do is that it does establish very clear principles of sentencing when it comes to animal cruelty. And essentially that they are crimes of violence and that if someone is cruel towards an animal and they're convicted of that, then they will go to jail unless there are exceptional reasons for them not to. And that's huge. Yeah, that does seem huge. And Mr. Zhu had said that the kitten had scratched him, had bit him. And I can yeah. imagine that in, in that case, and even if it's a five-pound kitten or smaller, that if right. someone was, um, was injured by an animal, they might have an initial gut reaction to push, say, for example, an animal yes. off of them that's biting. Yes. That seems reasonable and understandable. Yes. But you just described there very visually, very brutally, how he assaulted. He really did. He assaulted yes. and abused this sentence being and then he did it in numerous ways and then apparently he also left the animal and then went back to I was just abuse going it to some more that. yes i was just going to say that so it's not like it was a moment not like it would make it any better quite frankly but but it, it wasn't like he he swung the kitten hit the kitten left the kitten there you know at left no he did this repeatedly he left it this happened in the backyard of a building from what i understand he left the kitten there, went inside, went back to the kitten, redid the whole thing again. And it, thankfully, it's only because of a concerned citizen that this guy was caught. And unfortunately, the kitten did have to be euthanized. I mean, that's how badly this poor little creature was brutally assaulted. So, you know, just to end more on a positive note, um, it, it, it is that now... It is clear, the law is clear in British Columbia that these are crimes of violence, not a property. Courts recognize that animals are sentient beings. They're more than just property, in other words. And, and it's a step forward in animal law. Yeah, and it also made me think, uh, the judge's decision made me think that, you know, if he had uh, felt he was condone, he was punishing, for example, this animal for having bitten him, if that was the case, you know, your property wouldn't 
get punished in the same way, right? Somebody wouldn't go back to a car and keep kicking it and kicking it. No, what he did was absolutely violent. And so you feel this will set a new, it establishes the new precedent in BC? Yes, yes. It it establishes a new precedent in BC, and I'm very happy about that. Um, We need more cases. Well, I was about to say we need more cases like this. Not that we want more animal cruelty, but when people, it will happen, that's just the reality of it. And when it does, then I I am extremely, extremely pleased, I guess. I can't think of the proper word right now, but just, I guess, comforted in a way, knowing that these types of cases are being treated as crimes of violence as opposed to crimes of property. And just quickly, you know, you you were wondering about should we be changing adoption policies, right? Like how... How do we make sure that animals, companion animals, don't end up in the hands of individuals like this? And unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for you, um, or, or none that I can think of at least now. Because organizations like the SPCA, Pause for Hope, and really good organizations that that do due diligence to make sure that they they match the right animal yeah. with the right family. They do what they can. They do what they can, yeah. Rebecca. And also, if you look at this man, Mr. Zhu was uh, 22 years old. He had no criminal record whatsoever going into this. Right. Yes, right. he was socially isolated, depressed, felt alone is what he said. But, um, right. you know, for many people, that those those all those boxes may very well be checked and then they turn out to be a fantastic pet owner oh exactly i mean just look at the pandemic right exactly one of the main reasons why people have have adopted or or bought animals during the pandemic is because they felt more lonely and isolated and depressed and they wanted a companion by their side exactly the reasons that he said so it's it's hard for these organizations. What I would love to see, however, is, and I think we're pretty far from this, is a, a regulated, uh, a very well regulated industry when it comes to uh, pet adoptions and and the purchasing of pets because we don't have that now. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, so that would help. Thank you so much for being with us this morning and, and sharing your thoughts on this really important case. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, according to the United Nations Refugee Agency, at least 10 million people have crossed the borders from Ukraine to elsewhere. A new report says Canada should loosen visa requirements to speed up admission of Ukrainian refugees here. While the Canadian government did open the applications for an unlimited number of Ukrainian refugees to come to Canada, a relatively smaller number of people actually got accepted. So why is this happening? Immigration lawyer Richard Kurland is joining us now. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. All right. A public policy study out of U of Calgary says that compared to other countries, Mm. Canada's actually received a very small number of refugees, 72,000. Process, uh, the process has been described by some as uh, frustrating, as slow, as inefficient. (coughs) So why is that? What's going on? Well, the data is right. That comes from Friday, actually, uh, 72,000 people here on Canadian soil. But round numbers, big picture, uh, there's close to half a million applications that have been received and uh, close to 200,000 approved. So you've approved 200,000 and you got 72,000 on Canadian soil since March. 
So um, that's not a terrible track record, but relative to other countries, uh, Canada could have done more. Uh, kudos to our frontline visa officers who were faced with <laughs> the gargantuan task of bringing in extremely large numbers compared to what we normally do within a short period of time. So they were kind of building the airplane while the thing was flying. They changed operational procedures uh, to drop a lot of paperwork, uh, provided upfront information, got a private sector partner to take care of the passports and put uh, things called counterfoils into those passports. Um, But there were improvements literally weekly. But the problem relative to to other countries uh, in Europe uh, and, and smaller countries like Ireland have outperformed Canada. Yeah, and Ireland I think that's keeps, what the critics are aiming at. Yeah, Ireland keeps being used as the example. I noticed that, and it pops up several times in the report. What is Ireland doing that's so innovative? Well, they give money. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's not fair to compare just to Ireland. You've you got to go big picture, and you have to look at that, that uh, other countries socioeconomic makeup and um, their existing support structures. Some, you know, practically some of those countries have better uh, Medicare systems, uh, finance, education of young people, uh, more so than uh, what we do here in Canada, and that's for political reasons. And this is the hidden third rail of the Ukrainian dossier in Canada. Ottawa, the Prime Minister's office, is well aware of the 1.2 million Ukrainian-Canadian citizen voters. And this is an opportunity to build bridges, political bridges, in uh, federal liberal weak spots across uh, the prairies. So no surprise to see lightning speed, political instructions to the immigration minister to get it done, uh, to maximize political capital to be gained by looking real good on the Ukraine file. Okay. What are other countries doing to streamline their process that you think maybe Mm. Canada could do or should do? You pointed out that there have been 200,000 approvals, but only 72,000 individuals have actually come here. Yeah, even my own clients, it was a a barrier of frustration and lack of information when you're on the ground, uh, having departed Ukraine, sitting in Poland, flying around, literally flying around uh, to other European capitals, hoping to get uh, an appointment to give in your passport or to take your biometrics. So I, I signal they dropped the ball. They could have put biometric collection machines in the airports. Uh, we did that in Afghanistan. And if had they done that in the major airports in Europe, you could have cut processing times by at least a third. Uh, and uh, things could have gone a lot faster. And, and it's frankly more secure to do it on the spot, looking at the person and, and getting your biometric result rather than having to wait. Uh, we also could have done more on the ground here in Canada. Uh, you know that young people have to go to college or university. So (laughs) give them local student fees to pay or subsidize those local local student fees, but you don't say, come here, we'll take care of you. The the young person lands and is faced with a $20,000 study bill. So 
the, the left side and the right side got to communicate a little better on the ground. Uh, maybe the province could have uh, helped a little more, and that's the problem with Canada. It's a never-ending consultation between levels of government before results are achieved. And in this one, an emergency working group ought to have been set up from the get-go to get the kids in school as soon as they hit Canadian soil. Okay. So what about, though, and this is a a big criticism coming Mm. um, out of that public policy report, that the Mm. parliamentary committee was actually concerned that Russian spies were going to come in easier if overall more refugees were allowed in. So how legitimate Mm. is that concern, do you think, about uh, Russian espionage? Uh, I take it seriously. That's my personal view. And uh, but what would be different? I mean, you know, with, with that population popping in, uh, in, in that murky world of espionage, I don't buy it as a reason for uh, taking your time. Uh, if, if biometrics is not going to catch you today, it's not going to catch you in a year or two years either. So that, that complaint doesn't wash. What does wash is that Canada, uh, by uh, default, elected to allow the wealthiest Ukrainians into Canada as a priority. And that's because we didn't get our act together to arrange for transportation and uh, many of the upfront costs. So the wealthiest got first in line, and those are the ones, uh, you know, logic says, okay, came here first. We have fixed that. Uh, It was a criticism of many international groups that Canada was not doing its fair share to arrange for transportation and uh, the the, the government subsidies uh, that were available elsewhere on the planet in Western democracies, but we fixed it. It's a learning experience, and I think we're prepared, uh, not saying never, uh, if there's another wave coming out of um, Taiwan or Hong Kong. We now have the technology and the ability to process mass migration short periods of time with a lot of lessons learned. It sounds like it. Richard, thanks so much for sharing uh, your thoughts with us this morning. A pleasure. Take care. Well, the downtown east side was a chaotic and, you know what, sad, sad scene last week as city crews began the process of decamping an estimated a few hundred residents from the sidewalk on Hastings Street. This followed the Vancouver Fire Safety's uh, cited safety concerns. Several people were arrested. The housing future for the tw- tent dwellers is still unclear. So how could the government better address this problem? BC Green Party ML. Adam Olson joins us to discuss this. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Reggie. Hey, thanks so much for your time this morning. What did you think about how the events unfolded around the decampment last week, specifically the city and the VPD's role? Well, I think I, I first want to start by saying that I think that it is important uh, when the uh, fire chief and, and fire safety make uh, the determination that they made, and, and clearly there um, are life safety issues with the uh, situation that has emerged over uh, not days but weeks and and maybe months uh, the, the current situation at least uh, in the downtown east side um, and so there, there needed to be a response um, my my criticism was that uh, there were weeks that passed uh, and uh, you know the provincial government the city knew of this situation and uh and apparently made no accommodation for the people, um, you know, for for them moving to a place. It just seemed like, and I think that what, the images that we saw, uh, people being dispersed to nowhere, which is uh, completely unacceptable. 
Okay, but BC Housing did say that they had nowhere for the unhoused to be placed and that wasn't going to change for them even with pushing the deadline by a week or two weeks. Um, they, BC Housing just said simply, we just we don't have anywhere for anyone to go. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think that there are a number of temporary solutions that uh, we've seen BC Housing put in place. Uh, very, I mean, we've got one situation in my own riding here in Saanich North and the Islands where, where BC housing was able to stand up uh, a much smaller than, uh, than what would be needed in the downtown east side for sure, but uh, was able to stand up a temporary solution. Uh, there are you know, even more temporary solutions that could be used uh, that we see in, in the city of, used in the city of Victoria and as well the, the city of Duncan. So, you know, this is, a, as I said, this is not a situation that has that just appeared uh, overnight. It's a situation that's been growing the provincial government uh, has known about this situation. They've been uh, in communication with the city of Vancouver, uh, and um, they had a matter of, uh, of more than a month, uh, you know, two weeks at least since the, the fire chief uh, made the first announcement. So, you know, I think that um, I think the the solution that they've come up with, which was to to uh, simply disperse people. Uh, out uh, and and you know push them further out uh, is one that is going to ha- have uh, challenges of its own, and um, and you know pr- I just don't think that there is a legitimate excuse here that that there wasn't enough time or there wasn't an, uh, enough uh, um, uh, resources that the BC government and we in the provincial legislature debate the BC government's budget. Uh, they've invested a lot of money into uh, BC housing, billions of dollars into BC housing over the last. A number of years, and um, and they the resources are there, uh, and I think that uh, part of this has to has to uh, fall on the shoulders of the, uh, the the housing minister, the former housing minister David Eby, who's now in a leadership race, uh, and the current uh, minister of housing that's uh, looking after the file on a temporary basis, Murray Rankin. Okay, so you think that the resources are there. And then yet we've been hearing that even when temporary housing has been made available, that it is millions and millions and millions of dollars and that uh, we hear that the resources are not there. Well, we, we, um, we, we appropriate uh, billions. We've, we've been putting billions of dollars into BC housing. Uh, and so, you know, I, I see a situation... Uh, in my riding here uh, in Saanich North now, it's on Salt Spring, uh, where the provincial government uh, through BC Housing has uh, has stood up a, a temporary housing solution uh, for for a number of residents. Again, it's the the context is much different. It's a much smaller um, project, but they've they have spent um, a lot of money in a very short period of time. Uh, because it was necessary. And I think that what we see here in the downtown east side uh, is that it's necessary for this, uh, the provincial government and for the city to, uh, to find a solution that uh, it doesn't uh, further displace people. But, you know, I think that the former housing minister, David Eby, in one of the uh, previous uh, encampments in the city, uh, committed to, to not dispersing people until a housing solution was found. And um, as uh, this situation was growing on the sidewalks in uh, the downtown east side. I think it's incumbent upon the, the different levels of government uh, to act on this much quicker. We saw the police uh, taking action uh, to, to follow the, the fire chief's uh, recommendations or requests um, uh, last week. Uh, 
uh, and absolute silence uh, from the politicians. And I just I, I find that to be completely unacceptable. Um, you know that, uh, that 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 action and and the confrontations that were occurring uh, on the streets of Vancouver. Uh, could be done with the silence of uh, the provincial ministers that are that are responsible for social development and poverty reduction, responsible for housing, um, and uh, and and we hear absolutely nothing from the premier. So the fire chief had the independent authority to say that the situation wasn't safe, that there was high risk of loss of life, all those sidewalk structures being a fire hazard. Because we keep referring to the encampments as like a group of tents, but it was more than that, wasn't it? You have hundreds of shopping carts, which are heavy. Imagine like a paramedic trying to get through all of that. You have tents that are filled with just uh, some of them were just filled with belongings uh, from top to bottom. Um, and Sonia, first of no suggestion that, you know, maybe you close off the street, uh, had a lot of people talking when she suggested that maybe you close off the street to traffic. What did you think about that recommendation of hers? Well, look, I, I think the, the, the reality of it is, is that abs- something needs to be done and dispersing people, uh, uh, to, for them to move to literally nowhere to, to have no solution for them is not a solution. And so um, there, I think that the, the, uh, the provincial and the, and the city government need to, to take and make every consideration uh, available to them. And so I don't know that uh, Sonia was necessarily had come up with that. I think it was a suggestion from one of the advocates uh, that lived in the, lives in the downtown East side and works uh, with the people there. Uh, but, but clearly uh, there was no plan and it doesn't appear that there is, a plan. The plan is to just uh, disperse people, uh, to scatter them, and uh, and to, to pretend like the the problem has gone away. Uh, the the reality of it is is that we know that dispersing people doesn't make the problem go away. It just makes it less visible. But the reality of it is is that the problem exists, and uh, it's a tra- it's a tragedy in a in our society. We we are a wealthy society. Uh, we, like I said, uh, have, have repeated several times in this interview and, and since, we have uh, put billions of dollars uh, into BC housing to come up with solutions uh, for, for this and for other aspects of, of housing. Um, we have uh, a minister of social development and poverty reduction uh, that, that stands in the legislature and talks about uh, uh, the work that, and the effort that's been done uh, to decrease uh, poverty. Uh, in uh, in our province, and yet uh, we we still see these problems persist, and we're spending, like I said, in this province, billions of dollars. And then the solution was to scatter uh, people across the city, and um, and and what that does is it, it, like I said, it makes it people feel like there was a, a solution to the problem, mm-hmm. when in reality, uh, people are still living in 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 a very vulnerable situations, in very dire situations. Okay. Uh, just not collected uh, on the downtown east side. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Adam. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.